Okay, Allison, I have a very important question for you. Shoot. If you were forced to rank the greatest historical Kirstens of all time, where does Kirsten Larson fit? I would say from like a zero to a Kirsten Dunst in the 1990s to early 2000s. There's not a lot of middle, right? There's Gillibrand. Mm -hmm. Am I missing anybody? Um, I think the mom on the OC. Okay. Question mark. How many of them were Spider-Man's girlfriend? Even more important question, does that matter to literally anybody? No, not to me. Certainly not. Definitely not. Welcome back, everybody. We're back for our next adventure in American Girls. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. And I'm still Allison. Wow, I'm impressed by that. So, Allison, we want to kind of jump right in, but before we do, is there anything we need to update people about what's going on? So, we are going to be going on a Kirsten journey today, but before we do that, we want to talk about our own journey to the Big Apple. We were very recently in New York City. We were. We had ourselves a time. We were invited to do a photo shoot slash filming session at the American Girl Store in New York City last week. So we went down together on a train. It was a whole thing. We had a real adventure. We are excited to talk a lot about that in a future episode because too many things happened to us. Like we were able to serve my Molly doll a special treat after having her hair done. (laughs) It's like there's too much to pack in. But we didn't remember that Kirsten also goes to New York City, so we felt like this was kind of fate. Right, and we were also assisted by a stranger in our journey to New York, so we do want to thank that person. Michelle, if you're out there, we made a friend on the train. Shout out to you. Thank you for your service. I was fully prepared to have my doll occupy her own seat for as long as that made sense, And you kind of preemptively apologized to our new seatmate and you were like, yes, this is my friend Allison. She has a doll and a bag. We have a podcast. And Michelle very casually told us that she had had a very distressing time at the American Girl doll store, but had also spent a lot of money. So that seemed like perfectly on brand. So I brought my own anxiety to this experience because... Again, I'm not as into the material culture. I guess it's not like as comfortable for me. So I was already a little bit anxious about what we were going to discover because I'd never been to a store before. And basically, she hit us immediately with, I had an anxiety attack there. Yeah. And honestly, I can completely understand why that would happen to anyone in the store. Um, But we also do really want to thank them because we had a fantastic experience. Like we had a really very special time. And for me, and I would say for Molly, who's still kind of like coming down off of a high, it was a good time. You know, has my therapist encouraged me to seek out self-care after that experience? Possibly, but that's probably unrelated. I do want to thank the people at the store who were legitimately so sweet and so amazing to us. And they had, they were, could not have been better hosts. We had an amazing time. They indulged every question we had and let us record there. And we're very happy that they did because now you can experience our time at American Girl Store with us. We're going to put out an episode very soon, I hope, where we kind of take you on that journey with us. And my oh my, was it a time? Did we talk about Tanya Harding? Yes. Did we go to a doll hospital? Also, yes. Allison freaked out about a medical diagnosis that wasn't cholera, but, you know, seemed equally serious to you at the time. And I I took that seriously. It did. And I mean, we were given some kind of stunning news about older dolls. And I don't want to give all that away. But, you know, my Molly has seen better days. IRL, she would be 85 years old Mm -hmm. per her timeline. I mean, she looks good considering that and the haircuts I gave her, uh, but the hairdresser did not let me off the hook. She was like, this hair has been touched. And I was like, yes, it has. She held you accountable and that was tough to watch, but also, you know, I think it ended the best way it possibly could. Yes. And thank you to the person or the people, I should say, who've been sending me the new quizzes and the new infographics of when to know to cut your bangs. I was very close today, but I didn't do it. I held back. Proud of you. Very proud of you. I mean, people have all kinds of outlets that they turn to. Mine is cutting my hair. No (laughs) appointments on the horizon. So things are good. Wow. 
I mean, my former hairdresser did once say that she got into it by cutting her own bangs and other people's bangs in the bathroom at school. So I'm just saying like maybe you're actually developing another skill set. I hope so. I think that would be great. I mean, in this gig economy, who cares? You know what I mean? You have to have it. Yeah. If only I could have like the beautiful buns of Kirsten Larson. We wish. Those braids? My God. Those braids. How comfortable, or I should say, how familiar were you with the plot lines that we encountered in this book? Like, give me your Kirsten 411, what you remember going back into this. Okay, here's what I took with me into reading this book. I remember there's a bear attack at some point. And there is what I would call a truly iconic moment when she wears a crown with candles on it. Yes. That's it. That's all I had. Like, I knew she was Swedish. I knew there's a bear in play at a certain point, And I knew there's a crown of candles. And I also knew, and this I'm ashamed to admit after having just reread this book, I, with every fiber of my being since reading this book day one, back when I was eight or nine, believed whoever read this book and walked away thinking she was the best American girl was completely out of their minds because in my mind, nothing happened in these books. So much happens. Okay, but didn't you also have that memory of like nothing happens in these books? And I I truly have no idea where I got that because in this, we're going to get into it. This book practically made me start weeping. Okay. There's so much that happens. It's so good. I don't know where I got that, but didn't you think that at some point too? We both thought that, and I think part of it is we have had, I will say, the loveliest digital conversations with Kirsten's. You are all deeply, you know, empathic. You care. (laughs) You're thoughtful. No, I'm serious. Like, we've yet to receive a Kirsten message that's just, like, dashed off into the ether. Like, you care. You're thoughtful. And you come at us from a very almost like in an unduly fair place where you're like, listen, I know why you both may have thought this. Here's some additional information. We've said from the beginning that we're prepared to be wrong. And we are. You know, like we're wrong about this big time. Big time. And so Kirsten is also a little bit older than Josefina in the sense of having been written earlier. So Kirsten is like very, very original, pleasant company product in that she's from the late 80s, not the early to mid 1990s. And that feels important. Yeah, I think it is. And I actually think in some ways when you read this book, and I know some people have also written us to say that they think we don't like Valerie Tripp. Now, do I understand why you could think that? 1,000%. Like, we've said some rough stuff. Even at the American Girl Store, we'll get into this. Like, we got some leads on Valerie Tripp, and we basically were like, I must put my sunglasses on indoors and was like, don't tell anybody in here, (laughs) because I'm so afraid. Like, she seems genuinely wonderful, and I just feel really embarrassed and sad if she thinks I didn't like her, because actually I do. However... There are moments in this book when Kirsten also seems older than Josefina in terms of the way the authors are are helping Kirsten meet extremely traumatic events in these books feels healthier to me in some ways than what we got with Josefina. And I can't really account for that. I actually don't even think it's about the authors. But there's something in this book that does seem of a different time than Josefina too. Yeah, so when... We were digging into Valerie Tripp a little bit. We learned that she was friends with Pleasant Rowland. And so that's kind of how that connection came out. Um, And she had a background in education and children's work. Janet Shaw is more of, I don't want to say a traditional author, but she's published a lot more in the adult world comparatively. Mm -hmm. So Shaw is also the author of the Kaya books. Mm -hmm. So she's also kept busy. She's made some good paper, but... I like that this had not only a different author, but a different illustrator. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about this a bit more, but the illustrator is Renee Grafe, and she is from roughly this area. She's from near Lake Michigan, and she just did a wonderful job, I think, of matching the tone of the book to the necessary illustrations. With Felicity, and to a large degree, Josefina, we got kind of a more realistic set of sketches and with this we have these beautiful nicely done colored pencil sketches that I think just ease you into the story a bit better Mm -hmm. yeah it's there's something really beautiful about these illustrations and the perspective that she's offering us so 
you know, for example, on my in my edition, it's on page 37, but there's an illustration of Marta and her mother at her sickbed. And Karen, Whoa, spoilers. Okay, well... <laughs> Sorry, okay. this book has been out for 30-something years. It's yeah, fine. that's true. And I was reading it earlier, and Anna walked through and was like, did Marta die yet? And I kind of jokingly was like, what? She dies? How dare you tell me that? I'm not there yet. And I actually had – that had already happened. But it's – I'm not prepared to talk about that right now. But I will say that in this illustration where we do see Marta on her sickbed, I think the choice of perspective in this illustration is so beautiful because Marta's back is towards us so we can only see the back of her head and her body lying in bed under a blanket and we see her mother's concerned face looking down on her as she pats a cold cloth on her forehead and in the background we see Kirsten looking through curtains very concerned at her friend and it's kind of like this choice to actually not show us Marta's face as she's sick and as we later learn dying it kind of invites your imagination to create an image of what her face must look like suffering from cholera that is in many ways more dramatic and striking than any image that the artist could have rendered herself. So I just think that level of thoughtfulness runs throughout this book and it's really beautiful. I mean, I'm actually so embarrassed that I had no idea that any of this happened. And I promise I have read this book. I will note that Kirsten and I are the same age. In other words, this book came out in 1986. And I'm sort of wondering which one of us aged better. And I'm thinking it's this book and not me. But um, my book is also that. it's also in great shape, I have to say. There's yeah. something about the crispness and several people have commented that they remember the smell or the feel of the original Pleasant Company produced books. And they are different. I have a version that's about 10 years old. So I have two different copies of this text. And the newer version depicts Kirsten already kind of on the homestead with a bundle of kittens. And it's a very playful and childish cover. And what I love about the original 1986 cover is that Kirsten is kind of like striding towards the future defiant. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's a beautiful sketch on like the more kind of realistic plushy tones of the reboots that came out in the early 2000s. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what I always love about these covers is that Kirsten is looking at us right in the eye on the cover oh yeah in other words and she's giving us a look that's basically like yeah i'm gonna let you in on my journey here like let's go and in that spirit let's go this episode is brought to you by podcorn podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships what does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. So I'll give us the official recap that is put out by the publisher, which is a great one in this case. And then I have a short little addendum to make sure that people are followed up. They all know about Marta now. So we're there. Sorry. Um, That no, listen, people needed to get there eventually. So yeah. So Kirsten Larson and her family arrive in America in 1854 after a long sea voyage. Everything looks so different from the life Kirsten knew back in Sweden. The ways people talk and dress seem strange. Getting lost in a big city and parting with her best friend only adds to Kirsten's worry. Will she ever feel at home here? It is only when the Larsons arrive at a tiny farm on the edge of the frontier that Kirsten believes Papa's promise. America will be a land filled with opportunity for them all. So I'm just going to add on to this a bit so that we have a little bit more to work with because there are a lot of plot points in this one. Um, So throughout the early part of this book, especially um, when they're first on the ship, 
a lot of characters tell each other to have heart in this story. And I want to tell people who are rereading to also have a strong stomach to get through this book. In the beginning, Kirsten is on the ship. There's slop buckets. There's overtures to mess. Um, The best that she's kind of hoping for is some fresh air. But she loves being with her friend Marta. They have this beautiful friendship. Then the families land in New York, as the the previous one mentioned. Um, But Kirsten has this terrifying moment where she gets separated from the family accidentally. They do reunite, and they travel via train to Chicago. They stay at a boarding house. And at this point, Kirsten sees Marta again, she thought might not happen. They then all get on a riverboat because they're continuing west towards Minnesota. And Marta is one of the people who contracts cholera, and she does die on the boat. The official sketch from the publisher mentions Kirsten parting with a best friend, which is kind of vague and cryptic. Um, But this is really the most important plotline of the book. I don't want to say that it's rushed, but it is done quickly. They don't belabor it. Kirsten and her family then have to move on to head towards their uncle's farm, and they do have to walk the last leg of the journey, which requires them to leave a lot of their trunks behind, and that's kind of a further trauma. Um, They do finally arrive with Uncle Olaf and Aunt Inger. They have some children, and the book ends with Kirsten making new friends, meeting her new cousins, and making a fort. Um, We'll talk more about them playing pioneers on stolen land later. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, the hashtag empty forest that's actually not empty. Anyway, where do we even begin with this book, Allison? As I said to you right before we sat down to record, this book did more for me than perhaps Moby Dick ever did. So I need to put one thing out there right away. I want to talk a lot about the New York portion of the book because I think that was beautifully rendered. Yep. I need to know if Abuelito was on the riverboat. Yes. Oh, my God. I had the same question. Oh, I He has to have been, right? He has to be and or Tia Dolores has sold everything the family owns and they're all on the riverboat somehow. Um, what was stunning to me was how both the scenes on the riverboat, the scenes on the train, and I would say also the scenes on the ship where the family is physically very uncomfortable, but they're kind of bonding together, just how well done those scenes were. And I never doubted the authenticity of this family and their tightness, but they accomplished a lot in like 55 pages in this book. Yeah, I mean... This author gets so much done in 55 pages, it's actually shocking. And what I remember about this, reading this book actually made me think back to being at a conference. I can't remember when this was, but a journalist got up and basically said, a young person got up and said, I want to be a journalist. What should I do? There's nothing happening in my life to write stories about. My life is really boring. Now, first of all, the person was like, I doubt that's actually true, but moving on. What you should do is go ride public transportation and pay attention because you can get the story of everything from observing what goes on on public transportation. And actually, I was thinking about that reading this book because it's basically a story about transportation. It's a story about travel. But when you travel and when we see this family travel together, you see the ways that they have to negotiate their values, what's most important, what really matters, how do you protect each other, what will you withstand for the thing at the end of the journey. Um, it's It was shocking. I mean, the boat scenes, when we open, there's a storm and everyone's in steerage and it's so claustrophobic. You can actually, when they talk about the air turning foul, Mm-hmm. Um, at when and sour is the word that um, she uses because people are seasick. So they're all in steerage and the sailors batten down the hatches. So this the air turns absolutely foul and sour because everyone's like getting sick and they're all in these really every family has basically a bunk bed to keep their possessions on and to keep all of their family members um, resting on. It's I can't even fathom that, but she kind of puts you there immediately and makes you think about that in a sensory way. I also loved as a follow-up, and I flagged this, when the family has now, you know, been on this ship, they went to New York, they've since gone on a train, so she's had all these new experiences. And then I kind of love the nine-year-oldsness of this. When they get on the steamboat, Kirsten notices that some people have better accommodations than others, whereas on the ship, all the families were together. And on page 34, she asks her father, why can't we go up on the big deck? No one is out there. That deck is for rich people, Papa said. If we paid more money, could we go up there? He rubbed his forehead. 
We only have a little money left, Kirsten. And when we reach this boat, we'll still have to hire a wagon. And, you know, the mother kind of intercedes and explains that they're spending in a way that's really smart. And I was like, girl, you're so American. (laughs) Like, she's been in America a week and she's like, these people have it better than me. How do I get that? And he's like, money, we're just not there yet. I loved that, that little snippet so much. Yes, I love that too. And I love it because immediately after the mom kind of acts out and is basically like, stop asking dad about that. And it's not because she's upset that Kirsten is American after five minutes in the truest sense of the word and noticing disparities, but because there's the cholera outbreak. So having a comment that points us to class difference and then immediately introducing cholera into the plot is a really clever and important juxtaposition because in that period, those things would have been understood as inextricably linked. I feel like you have been bursting at the seams since the second you finished this book to talk about cholera. I love talking about cholera. I'm not going to hide that. I basically like I went to such a place because I'm very interested in this and I was very interested in like, okay, how does this relate to the epidemic or sorry, it's really a pandemic, but London, what was happening in the US and basically your only text to me ahead of time was like, I have maps, I have documents. Right. I mean- Like all cholera. Yes, of course. Look, as soon as I saw the cover of this book and it's at 1854, I was like, of course, Dr. John Snow. Yeah. Like, okay, I don't even know where to start with this, but let me back up. Here's some important things to know about cholera. One, it's a gastrointestinal disease. We know that now, and obviously the sufferers then, those were the most visible symptoms. What people didn't understand was how you got cholera and how you could prevent its spread. So originally, people thought cholera spread through miasmas, which is a fun word to say, but basically signals um, rotting uh, goods, rotting food. So it often gets mapped onto poorer folks in cities because people think, particularly in New York City, if you think about Five Points, a a notoriously poor section of the city um, housing Irish immigrants and African-Americans, newly arrived immigrants from um, multiple backgrounds, the ways that immigrants had mapped on them um, disease because they lived in poorer parts of the city with um, what people considered um, bad conditions. And in those conditions, if there was an outbreak of cholera, people say, well, of course, it's because these people are living in filth and they're causing their own disease. And so not only is the disease tragic, but it gets mapped onto those suffering the most as like you brought this on yourself. So when people are trying to understand this cause, a lot of rich people would write about those suffering and try to make sense of it. And this is one of the letters that I said to Allison, like, I am looking this person up immediately. He's the person I'm going to as like classic, rich, um, absolutely lack of compassion, um, air quotes, casual observer of this phenomenon, but also like greatest evidence of um, this practice. So there was a person named John Pintard in New York City who was a philanthropist. And in one of the cholera outbreaks in 1832, rather than leave the city, which is what all rich people did, um, he stayed and he writes a series of letters to his daughter. And because we have those letters, we have a sense of what the epidemic was like in the city. Uh, so he, this is how he describes the epidemic. He says, quote, it's almost exclusively confined to the lower classes of intemperate, dissolute, and filthy people huddled together like swine in their polluted habitations. And in another letter, his judgment is even more extra. He says, quote, those sickened must be cured or die off in being chiefly of the very scum of the city, the quicker their dispatch, the sooner the malady will cease. So in other words, all these poor people who have cholera just need to check out and then this outbreak will stop and we can all move on with our lives. And along those lines, because when you were talking about miasmas, where I used to work professionally, Newport, Rhode Island, one of the reasons why people would summer there historically, not just in the late 1800s, but much, much earlier, was people had this understanding of disease. I think of like the dirty kid from Peanuts, where the cloud yeah. follows him, pig pen. right? Pig pen. pig pen. People thought of disease as being rather like pig pen. And so people from the American South would travel north and to microclimates like Newport, like Aquidneck Island, and they would summer there. And in their own minds, their theories checked out because the way that they thought about disease, disease was confined to their plantations where enslaved people were causing the disease. 
they removed themselves, they summered elsewhere, and the disease didn't affect them. So in their own minds, their very skewed understanding, it worked. The reality was they left behind people who were vulnerable to disease because they were being starved and overworked, not because this like cloud was over them. Right. And that's what makes us go back to the multiple meanings of the word disease, that in many ways you can think about immigrants, uh, people of color, people of lower station, people who throws to set a threat to the social order were literally a cause of dis-ease for um, wealthier or more privileged people. Now, along those lines, what did you think of Kirsten's immigration process? Kind of sketchy and really scary, honestly. Like, because what about it? Like her arrival or, or what did you think? Well, of I mean, the health inspector, we don't really get to see that process. So my only disappointment, and I genuinely love this book, I only wanted, my disappointments were only like, geez, I really wanted more because I loved her writing. Yeah. And I loved the story. So I would have loved a scene of Kirsten and her family actually um, meeting the health inspector and going through that process. Because as the dad reminds their son, I think Peter, who's scared because the mom's been seasick the whole time. So when he hears that you can only get into America if you're not sick he's like oh god mom's been sick this whole voyage and the dad's yeah. like uh-uh no seasickness doesn't count we're talking cholera we're talking things that can kill people so to see how those um, examinations played out would have been really interesting just as someone who's really interested in the history of medicine so because we're probably thinking like we know all the mechanisms that get built up at Ellis Island later mm -hmm. so I actually found an article and we'll link to this that looks at this year really specifically and 1854 was a year where people in New York and Massachusetts were basically commissioners and bureaucrats were trying really hard to have more power mm -hmm. to inspect people more thoroughly. And their obsession was sort of with paupers, so a, an impoverished person. And I found something right about this year. And these are commissioners writing a report. Um, and their reflection at the end of 1854 is, quote, if they have not done more, it has not been from negligence or want of disposition, but purely insufficiency of power. So these commissioners are saying that they and their bureaucrat colleagues like wanted to deport more people, wanted to have stronger mechanisms to keep um, potential paupers, you know, in quotes, um, and to have the quote most desirable people, but they just didn't have the power to do so. Hmm. That's really interesting. So this is actually a flashpoint and we can talk about this more in later episodes, but this is a time period where the federal government is getting more power in some ways. You think of the Fugitive Slave Act of just three years earlier. That's a huge extension of the way that governments are supposed to talk to each other. And I talk about this with people not infrequently. People have this imagined sense that their ancestors, quote, immigrated correctly, end quote, or that they followed certain procedures. And usually that sense or that information just comes from an ignorance on some level of what these people actually went through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, because the story we're getting is actually incredibly unregulated. Like there was actually yeah. no moment. And the technology of selfhood, if we want to think about that for a second, like the history of passports and of identification is actually in development, as you're pointing us to in this same moment. So it's not like people were getting off the ship and they were saying like, you got to show us your passport. Where did you come from? You know, why are you here? What's going on? It's like, this whole system does not really exist. It's kind of coming together in this moment, but it's incredibly informal. Now, Allison, you know that I did once study for about a semester, the councils, and we Oh my took gosh. <laughs> no, I'm so like, I'm in a place because basically everyone we knew for a week was reading a book about passports, and everyone was like, did you know the technology of selfhood and dual citizenship? And I was like, stop, I'm not in this class. I think you're I just get it. jealous because you weren't in that class. I mean, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't because I do find things like dual citizenship or, you know, examples of women losing their citizenship by marrying someone who's foreign. I find that very fascinating. But basically, you got in real deep with a council for no reason. Okay, but we were, we had to, we were assigned. And look, some people made some really crazy gambles where they were picking places where they could not read the language and they were still like, look, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to figure out a way to read these letters. Can you tell the people what a council is just because we can't spell it? So, 
Well, that's entirely fair. It's a government position in which you would be positioned at a port and you would be the representative of the American government in that port. So if you were a merchant and you wanted to ship goods through that port, you would have to actually get the seal of the council, um, like a stamp basically on your whatever it is, like on your order, on whatever to say, like, look, I have the stamp of the council. I have permission to move my goods through this port. Um, It's sort of like you pay a duty, you pay a tax. And actually the council stamp came with a a fee of like a dollar or something like that in this time. So if you knew a politician, if you had a friend who was like a rising star in politics, you might be able to say, hey, man, I kind of don't have my life together. I need a get-rich-slow scheme, or in some instances, depending on your station, you could actually make a fair amount of money, and you could basically live there, represent the American government with little to no bureaucratic or government experience. If this sounds familiar, you know, think about that. And you would represent the American government if there was some kind of legal issue, if something came up in that area. It was kind of like being an ambassador, but you actually had more power in some ways. So the person I studied was Nathaniel Hawthorne. And I'll just, I mean, I had to. And he was one of these people who knew someone who became a big figure in American politics. He was college friends with none other than Franklin Pierce. (laughs) This is, I'm sorry, this is like the weirdest flex I've ever seen. You know what, Allison? I don't care. You want to make fun of me for being in that class? I was in so deep. You're just a hater because you weren't in that class with me. But look, I read the passport book. I kept it in my brain. I did all of this research. I never got to use it. I'm using it right now. Here is the most amazing thing I learned reading all these letters. I sat and read every single letter Nathaniel Hawthorne sent out and received that's in the records. And let me tell you something, 98% of it is like, here's how much corn is being shipped through Liverpool. And much like the Scarlet Letter, did you not get an A? Yes, I did. But... That part doesn't matter to me because, you know what, it's like, I'm not really in it for the grades, okay? So I was a little bit jealous. Basically, all my friends were constantly reading council letters and, like, going off the deep end, and I was just in a different place. I want to throw to a text that was very formative in my understanding of New York immigration. This is either going to resonate with you right away or not at all. One word, Rifka. Wait, what? Does the name Rifka take you anywhere? Yes. Um, It's that. Wait a second. Is that a book? Yeah. So let me just pull up a little (laughs) intel for us. I have to say this was, so this is a Newbery Medal winning book, which is a big deal um, in children's literature. This book had such a big impact on me. It's about a young girl who's immigrating into the United States. Letters from Rifka. Um, oh yeah 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 okay okay here's where it really hit me in the feels someone in the group i'm not going to act like i remember all the details is detained because of hair lice and this happened contemporaneously with someone having an outbreak of lice at my school and in the way that you know you make connections that aren't really there i was like what are the stakes because people are being sent to the nurse's office all the time to have their hair combed out and much like some of our our listeners have told us like children's books made them feel so empowered i had this like internal moment of like guys i know what's going on nope i've read rivka no nope. i know the procedures that are going to be in place the knowledge that Rivka taught me didn't actually translate. I know that might be surprising. So, in other words, you weren't able to de-louse, or is that how you say it? De, yeah, de, yeah, de-louse, so, yeah, de-louse your classmate. I just think I felt better prepared because I went through this with Rivka. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of amazing how children's books will give you a false sense of expertise in something that you will never be called to demonstrate, but you're kind of like, I will invent that situation right here. Like, I remember reading The Witch of Blackbird Pond, but then also The Dear America that was also about the Salem Witch Trials. And I basically was like, if anyone accused me of being a witch, I could get out of it. Like, if I was on trial in that moment, I would know what to do. I feel like... In subtle ways. And then like, of course, you look back and it's like, no, of course, I was not prepared for that kind of situation. But I felt this tremendous amount of empathy and sympathy for the people in that book. And I think, yes, that sense of empowerment was, you know, of a moment. But to think of the important literature that came out about 
children immigrating in mm-hmm. that time period. Mm-hmm. And to even think of the way that they're really, because I did some research about children's literature in the 1980s, there really was not a lot of literature portraying these kinds of experiences, how important that is now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I was thinking about that a lot, actually. I didn't know that it was relatively new or I guess on an uptick in the 80s. But in some ways, I'm wondering if that's a response to kind of Reagan America to kind of say, like, we want to actually tell humane stories about immigration. And the same way that I'm wondering now, is there going to be a surge in humane and compassionate stories about immigration being written in 2019? Well, I think what's different is, you know, because we are talking about the books that were popular that sold a lot. You know, Kirsten is from Sweden. Mm-hmm. I remember reading, I mean, like a, a, a truly extraordinary number of books about Jewish immigrant families, some of them being Russian. I feel like that was sort of like a mini genre in the late 80s, early 90s. Like you read books about that. So I think it was a specific kind of European immigration that mm-hmm. people were writing about. That said, we have heard from people with the Josefina context that they related to Josefina, they related to Kirsten, not because of their ethnicity matching up perfectly, but a similar sense of being new or being different or being immigrants themselves and feeling connected. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is not related in the sense that I am not an immigrant, but I remember I switched schools when I was going into fourth grade. And I remember reading these books, not knowing the content. Like, I don't remember the plot at all, obviously, because I got a lot wrong here, but I didn't remember a lot. But I remember I remember the experience of reading this book more than I remember the plot. And I remember reading this book right this summer before I was going to switch into a different school and feeling like, okay, she's traveling into something new and she seems to be handling it okay and maybe I'll be okay too so even just on that basic felt level like having you know completely no relationship to this like major immigration story context it felt comforting to me so I can't even imagine how it felt for people reading it from you know more of a related context I think that's also the power of good writing and I think you know when we were on the ship with Kirsten smelled really bad, right? That's a basic primal connection we can all make. We've all been somewhere that was smelly and crowded. When she gets onto the train for the first time, and we literally had this experience last week, walking into the bowels of Grand Central, how hot and how steamy it was. And the family is afraid that the train is going to catch fire. And when she gets on the steamboat, they have this other new experience, which is the noise and the chaos and the busyness. And I think the way that they bring in all of your senses, like she's visually overstimulated on the steamboat. She's hot on the train and it smells bad on the ship. That's so you don't have to be a Swedish girl living 160 years ago to get that. Yeah, and I think this book does a really powerful job building on that to talk about the ways that you have a childhood fear of the unknown. So when they talk about a train going on the train, Kirsten and Marta are having a conversation, and neither of them has ever seen a train, never mind been on one, and they literally have nothing to expect. Um, and Kirsten says, what do you think a train looks like, Marta? This is on page 26. I don't know exactly. My father says it will make a loud noise and a lot of smoke. We might be afraid of trains, Marta said. Kirsten grinned. Noise won't hurt us. And Papa says a train is like many wagons all traveling together. Maybe you'll get on our train tomorrow. Wouldn't that be lucky? And it's like the earnestness with which Marta says we might be afraid of trains. Yeah. Like, oh, is this something to be afraid of? And then Kirsten sort of, and it's such a beautiful friendship moment because it's like you need your friend sometimes to say like, no, we don't need to be afraid of this. It's going to be okay. It's, it was just so beautiful. So beautifully done. I spend a lot of time on a highway and I like get basically like when I hit like asphalt again with my feet on the ground every day, I'm like, I made it. (laughs) Like I have a very, I have a very like troubling commute in terms of like speed of vehicles and, and length. And I think all the time, because I talk a bit about transportation history, um, and you and I both went on a a journey of like this era and like canals, turnpikes, like we've all had that phase where we were interested in that period of infrastructure building. And I wanted to read you one of my favorite quotes, which is from an earlier period, but it's something I think about all the time. 
Martin Van Buren wrote a letter to Andrew Jackson, and he's talking about railroads. And he says, as you may well know, railroad carriages are pulled at the enormous speed of 15 miles per hour by engines, which he puts in quotes, which in addition to endangering life and limb, roar and snort their way through the countryside, setting fire to crops, scaring the livestock and frightening women and children. The Almighty never intended that people should travel at such breakneck speed. And like, I love this because I bring a similar flair for drama for ground travel. Yes, you do. Like, you're afraid of airplanes and like air travel. I'm this way on the ground where I'm like, this train is probably going to derail. I'm not going to make it over. This car is like a moving, like mass vehicle of destruction. So I read that quote, like, again, not infrequently, and I feel it so hard. Like, if only Martin Van Buren knew that the cure to get over that is just to stage your Molly doll in a photo shoot on a Metro North train. I wish he knew that. <laughs> I I also wish that he hadn't enforced the Indian Removal Act, but... It's, can't, it's tough, you know, it's like not everyone gets to go to college with Franklin Pierce and get a sweet gig as counsel. I mean, hate to bring us back to that, but, you know. I think this, like, this, like, care that you have for Nathaniel Hawthorne is fascinating. Like, I love it. I don't actually care for him. I'm more into his wife, but it's just a fascinating thing. And I'll just say the most interesting thing I learned, and I'll leave this aside after this, is that when he was counsel, a lot of people who didn't have passports because it barely existed in that time would come to his office and have to prove that they were American in order to get approval to go to travel to the United States. And the way that he would authenticate if they were American, lacking all documentation, like they would come and literally say, like, I don't remember how I got here. I don't know where I'm from, this and that. He had a portrait of George Washington over his fireplace, and he had all this really random Americana stuff and memorabilia in the room. And he would sort of just casually say, so who's that guy? <laughs> like, can you even imagine? Who's that guy? And the person was like, Ugh, couldn't tell you. And he's like, yeah, they're not American. Bye. So what I love about that and what I love about Herman Melville is they're basically failed bureaucrats. Exactly. 100% entirely. Like, Like, they can't hack it. They can't hack it, but they're also men of privilege. Like, the fact that they could even get that job represents privilege of this connection to someone in a position of power. And yet they meet that moment instead of saying, like, wow, I'm so grateful that I could get this job and feed my family and this and that. And so they're like, oh, like, I'm so miserable. Like, what is even the point of life? It's like guy in your MFA, but like an American bureaucrat in the 1850s. Like, I could not stand either of them. I would be so exacerbated. And I would literally just be like, send me anywhere. I'll say who that's whoever I need to say it is in that portrait. Is it George Washington? Is it Ben Franklin? Is it your mom? I don't know. Get me out of here right now. <laughs> well, and it's, it's such a good reminder that people think back on those kinds of people and that period as being one that's very formal. And it's always a good reminder that for most of human history, you are who you say you are until someone can confirm otherwise. And that that's actually a really hard thing to do for almost all of human history. Right. And so much of citizenship citizenship is actually a performance. And Mm -hmm. it's a performance that gets evaluated as credible by people in positions of power. And so it's always a moving needle. It's a moving target. Who gets to... Um, count as someone giving a credible performance as a citizen. And you can see that in the ways that even our elections are being covered right now, the ways that um, the crisis at the border is being covered. Um, but, and I wonder if in these books we're going to get that too, as Kirsten's actually in the United States in a more permanent way and she has her feet on the ground, which was an issue in this book. She felt really wobbly. I loved that when she got off the ship. It's very cute. And she was so dizzy because she wasn't used to being on land. But as we get more into that, you know, are we going to see her trying to adopt kind of the persona and, you know, behaviors of an American citizen? Well, and something else about Kirsten. So she has the wobbly legs. You know, she gets lost. That's kind of a universal human experience. You get separated from someone for a minute and you feel that intense panic. Um, And I love the way that they situated her in the busyness and the the multilingual space of New York City in that Mm -hmm. period. I immediately Googled Gangs of New York to you kind of to. try to... I know, There's no overlap, sadly. She's after. Dang. 
I know we can we can try. Um, I think Leonardo DiCaprio would totally date her in another timeline or this timeline. Um, she's nearly old enough. Um, Allison, I mean, it's true though. Your love I'm of a him fan, is, and I'm just saying, your love of him is kind of getting more problematic by the year <laughs> because well, he gets older and his girlfriends don't. But I became interested too. Like, there's so much about this that. I think is smarter than you even realize when you first do like one or two read throughs, like having her then move to Chicago where she, you know, temporarily where she lives in a boarding house and it's like this other opportunity. Part of what I liked is, you know, it's not as if children are without biases or without prejudice, but there's this kind of wonder as she's moving through all of these spaces where it's like, wow, these other people don't think, look or talk like me. I need to kind of find a way to communicate versus if we were following an older person, their defenses might go up. But Kirsten is so vulnerable. She's so curious, you know, and the way that Kirsten's have reached out to us, there's this like tremendous empath quality and Mm -hmm. like thoughtfulness and understanding. And we see that with her in all these spaces that are actually kind of scary for a kid. Yes. Um, it, It actually reminds me of, I know she's going to be a Midwesterner by choice. The Minnesota counts as Midwest, yes. If it doesn't, because I botched this with New York State, just tell us. I think it is, but... I think it is. I've been to Minnesota for research, and I had an amazing time. Of course, I went in the summer, so I can't speak to the winters, but the people there... I actually was thinking about my time in Minnesota when I was reading this book, because people there were so earnest in a way that I realized that people in New England are not. And in a way that people were so sincere and so helpful and so polite that I almost thought everyone I met was a serial killer because I was like, this can't be real. Like, yeah, you know what I'm saying? It's like, maybe I've just been in New England too long. Well, so the other side to that, because I felt like I really needed to brush up on my Minnesota history. I was like, all right, I'm not there. I need to get there. So it's a territory starting in 1849. So five years prior to this, and it doesn't become a state until 1858. So we're not going to get there in the course of these books. Um, And there's a lot of changes that come more so in the 1860s. But we'll do a bit more of this in subsequent episodes for reasons that will become clear. But I did a deep dive into the place where they land, which is Riverton, Minnesota. That's where they actually get out and start walking. They have a very small population today, like still only in the hundreds. Wow. I wonder why. So I think it's not, it's obviously not a densely populated area. Um, But part of why I wanted to point that out is there is a sense with Kirsten, like they're coming to empty land and they get to build this kind of utopia with family. Um, Obviously, people had preceded them by thousands of years. Um, And there are certain groups that had been there, including the Dakota and a few others. Um, We'll talk about this a bit more because Kirsten does interact with an indigenous community. Um, But this is within the context of Fort Snelling, of important sites that end up getting built in Minnesota because it is considered a frontier. Like there's a lot of natural resources that people try to extract. So I don't want us to miss that piece of... Like, there would be a ton of violence in her life vis-a-vis Little House on the Prairie. Uh, Yeah, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of Little House tie-ins as we go through. But, I mean, I think in the same way that we think about Josefina as a story about imperialism and colonialism, that was complicated in many ways, right? Because, you know, her family was going to be colonized by the United States in her lifetime. But also, her family took part in the displacement and, you could say, um, resource extraction of the indigenous people in their community. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it goes both ways. And I think we're going to see that with Kirsten, that even as it's a story of hope and opportunity for her family, it's really at the cost of a great many other people who we may or may not actually meet in this book. So that will be interesting to see if we get any kind of reference to that or conversation around that. Oh, we meet them in the next book. I had a preview. See, I, I had a little sneak peek. I know that in the next book, she makes a friend. Oh, God. See, once again, I don't remember a single thing about these books. You know the three things I remember, the bear, the candles, and now I've forgotten the third thing. I don't even know. The death? Yeah. Whew, no. R.I.P. See, I, I, I didn't remember that at all. Until a friend reminded me. No. Um, 
But what was stunning is that like the town, so forget where she actually lives, the town where they land doesn't even get incorporated until more than 60 something years later. Wow. So they've chosen to situate her in a truly very remote place. I will say, based on the description, I was hungry when I read this book, but based on the description of what Aunt Inger and Uncle Olaf had going on, I was like, I could move in here. Are you kidding? Like the cooking. That's like all I remember about her plotline was like top treats. Really? Yeah. Okay. I like the crisp that there was like some kind of like blueberry crisp or blackberry crisp on the stove and I wanted that. Well, the other thing too, and and this kind of took me by surprise that I hadn't remembered it. So I had a very good friend when I was a child and read this book and she had a Kirsten and that was her favorite. And she had the beautiful blue trunk that Kirsten Mm. has to leave behind when they have to walk temporarily. And I had totally forgotten this. The beautiful sketch of Kirsten kind of peering into the trunk, sadly thinking about what she has to leave behind after all this. My friend had that trunk and we would store kind of like special American girl things in there. And folks have asked us, you know, to talk about the material culture. I had completely forgotten about that. And that page just summoned like all these memories of how much fun we had with her Kirsten and her little sister's bitty baby. Something I had completely forgotten about. Whenever I think about the Kirsten doll, I always think about my own fear about ruining her braids because to me she had the most intricate hair design and I kind of felt at the same time like daring myself like oh do you dare to take these braids down and undo it and see if you can do it the same way back again which of course you can't not exactly right but I remember friends and I just being like okay are we gonna maybe we should just take one down because at the time I was learning how to braid period So Mm. that was kind of a big flex for me at the time where it was like, I just learned how to do this. Let me try and do this on Kirsten and redo these really kind of, to me, still now intricate braids. It didn't go great. Didn't end well. No? No. Is she okay? I mean, I think she's kind of like half up, half down, or she was for a while. And then I think I tried to pull something together by way of braid, but it was never the same. It was never the same. And that's on me. This fear did not hem me in with my dolls. You just kept, well, I mean, I've seen what happened with Molly. Yeah. Whew, I've seen what happened with that. Now, do you want to hear how other people responded? Because, like, we haven't hit Ciara level. Shout out. I miss her. Yeah. Like, I miss her from hosting. She's a listener. We're very grateful for her. Yes, we are. Um, But I did find a few gems. Are you interested? Yeah, let it on me. So a lot of people really, really enjoyed this book. Um, I just loved this. CG says, such a wholesome, wonderful thing. Grand indeed, even for old grandmas. I just loved that. Okay, yep. Tanya, who did give it a good rating, still calls it good. I'd recommend a little older than six or seven. My girls didn't want to continue after the death. Fair, entirely fair. Amy kind of echoes this, and so after not liking Josefina, we tried this one. Talk about depressing, many exclamation points. Her friend dies horribly of cholera. Maybe there are eight-year-olds that like to read about things like this, but mine is not one of them. What a way to sell dolls. Yikes. Stopped after the cholera chapter. Wow. And Kelly kind of has a, you know, a rebuttal. She says, yeah, Marta dies. Yeah, Kirsten gets lost in the city. Yeah, the family faces hardships. What family doesn't? But the message is that the Larson family sticks together, works hard, and she finds many other messages. Um, And she says, ultimately, you know, it's fun and enjoyable. Helen chimes in, this is not a good book to give to a sensitive child. (laughs) Whoa. Um... So people... People are fixated on that. Well, I was like, okay, I kind of get that. But I also, that's why I like it. I don't really like books that talk down to children because I think children can kind of hang with more than maybe certain entertainment people think they can handle. Like, I think Inside Out, you know, that animated movie, the Pixar movie, Mm -hmm. that's what it's called, right? Yeah, like it's, I think that's one of the most nuanced things I've ever seen talking about feelings. And that's directed not just at children, it's for adults too, I'm sure, but... 
I mean, I really liked how smart that movie was and how, like, it gives kids a language to understand feelings in a really mature way. And I think this book actually does very similar work. Like, I actually, the death obviously is very upsetting. I'm 33. I was very upset by this. Yeah. But first of all, I don't think Pleasant Rowan was sitting around a conference room saying, like, what's going to move dolls off the shelves? Like, what do we need in this book series is going to make people run to the store? And it's like, dead friend, immediately. Well, and the other real sort of existential question that she tosses around several times, and I flagged two places where it's explicit. Page 27, she asks, how can America ever really be my home? Page 32, she's thought about this a bit more, and she says, at last, America was beginning to feel like home with good food, a real bed to sleep in, and best of all, friends. And I think, again, one of the lessons of this book is, you know, friends will be there for you. You may lose a friend, but you still have a capacity to make new ones. Yes. And like, Josefina could not hang like this. No. I mean, she was losing goats left and right. Um, she had a homicidal aunt, like, rolling in immediately. Like, there was so much happening in that book that was deeply alarming. Um, but, you know, speaking of even the saddest part of this book, which is obviously the death... First of all, I just want to call people's attention to an, an illustration on page 39 in our edition. But you see the sailors um, carrying Murda's co- um, coffin on their shoulders in the distance. They're in shadow. And all we see is Kirsten in her mother's arms. Again, her back is towards us. So the illustrator has once again chosen to let us imagine the grief on Kirsten's face in the same way that we imagine illness on Marta's face earlier. And, you know, Kirsten's obviously crying extremely upset and we see on the next page 40 um papa patted her shoulder enough crying stop now kirsten he said but mama cradled her and said softly let her have her tears and that was so moving to me because that's not a moment that josefina ever got no like no no one ever said to josefina like your mom has died that's awful you must feel feelings about that you are allowed to have feelings about that. And in this moment, it's like the mother steps in. Someone tries to shut down her emotion, which is basically the entire Josefina story. And the mother says, I think so, like, in a, such a loving way, let her have her tears. And it's such a beautiful moment. This other part of me was like, I want Lysol for this family so badly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm so nervous. I'm like, did they share a cup? Yes. And when she was like, I was playing with her on the deck last night. Like, what do you mean she has cholera? And it's like, oh, my God. Like, were you guys sharing bread again? And like, was there saliva somehow exchanged? And, you know, like, I don't even know. Like, were you, yeah, sharing a cup of water? You just want to scream because, like, we know about Jon Snow. We know about his experiments in London where he basically visualizes all these cholera outbreak cases in London, traces it back to a shared well in which someone had thrown a contaminated diaper that's how he tracks it you can see his maps online they're very easy to find but i love the book the ghost map which is about his studies and what i think is fascinating because i can tell you in industrial cities in the united states people continued to contract and die of typhoid and cholera even though they could point to the contamination source because basically people could not be bothered to stop putting their sewage into the water. Like, mm-hmm. that's the bottom line. Yep. Um, and this will be more of a Samantha journey, but unless you have actual regulation that's enforced, it doesn't matter. No. That's kind of the, you know, like having a bro like Nathaniel Hawthorne as a bureaucrat in an immigration context is fine as long as he's not keeping people from living their lives having like a stooge controlling water contaminants not good definitely not good and also no sense of public health even thinking about different um, urban disease outbreaks like tuberculosis at the you know turn of the 20th century and having public health officials who would go into people's homes and say you know you can't spit in your house like you can't spit in and around your household like that will communicate disease like you can't get rid of refuse in like within striking distance of drinking water like all of these things that people didn't necessarily know but it's like if you don't have that federal regulation if you don't have that municipal regulation people will just go rogue and do whatever and that's how 
I think sometimes in histories of medicine, there's such a romance of narratives of progress. Like the minute someone that we can date, like knowledge of the source of a disease, we kind of get into lull ourselves into the sense of like, oh, well, after 1854, like Jon Snow discovered cholera. Like we don't have any of that anymore. Like it's over. No, like that's not how medicine works. Like even knowledge of the cause, like it doesn't, it doesn't transmit at the rate that we think it would. It's not like someone has figures out the so the riddle in London and suddenly in New York City, it's no longer a problem. It's like, no, that continues to be a problem. And you may think about that even now, like people in our world t- today in the developing world and all parts of the world have issues in public health that we think we've air quotes solved in other parts of the world. Can I just say like, this is not a political statement. Get a flu shot. Get a flu shot, please. Get your vaccines. I'm not going to talk about Justin Timberlake's <laughs> wife anymore on the show. <laughs> I don't want letters about it, but it's like, please get your vaccines. Please get a flu shot. Like, let's not play games. Okay, but we did get a letter about Jessica Beale, And remember, it was lovely. It was like tea. Yeah. yeah. We take that. Yeah, thank you very much for that. We appreciate that. Also, that thank you to the person who wrote me an email about One Tree Hill, which I have not responded to, but I will. It's just that I feel too much. So I it's know. not that I have nothing to say. I have too much to say. So I'm just trying to figure that out. Overall, so I didn't know if I was going to like go here, but I feel like it's the right time. Uh-oh. When we met Felicity, like we reintroduced ourselves to the series, okay? Yeah. And then I feel like we learned a lot of lessons with Josefina. Okay. And to this point, like, what a wonderful surprise Kirsten has been. Yeah. Like, we're our own American Girl arc right now. Oh, my God. Do you know Do you know what I'm saying? What does that mean for us? Like, a rebirth is coming. Are we going to have to save the day at some point? Yeah, we probably are. Oh, my God. Can we handle that? I mean... Well, saving the day, it'll be with Samantha because, like, she didn't really do a lot, but, like, we will. Like, we will intervene in a meaningful way. We're going to get so many letters about you saying that, by the way. Thanks a lot. I know, but I think what I appreciate is, like, Samantha's love really hard. Yeah. They love really hard. Kirsten's are, like, so gentle and thoughtful, but also like firm in their beliefs. Like, yes. And Molly's are just us. They're like, hey, girl, like, I've known you for five years. I yeah. love it all. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. We had to explain to a grown man who was interviewing us in the middle of the American Girl store. I was like, well, obviously, we're both Molly's. And he just said in like the most sincere, kind, generous way, he was like, can you explain what that means to someone who doesn't know? And I was like, it's sort of beyond language. I don't like. It's kind of we like did Fight explain. Club. Like we tried to explain, but it was sort of like a really lame telling of Fight Club, where I was like, if we have Soap? to explain this to you, yeah, it was. It was just really sad. Where he was like, I don't uh, eat what, and we were like, this is so in our DNA that we don't even think we have to explain this to you. No, no. But I'm I'm like I'm so thrilled to be in Kirsten land and I have to say like shout out to you, Janet Shaw. Like love your drop in of so many actual historical events. Like you're making our job easier. We love you, girl. You're doing it. I'm I'm so ready for this series. I'm genuinely very excited. And I feel like we're reading this at a time in a moment, a time in a place of a renaissance of Kirsten's. Mm. And I just do want to give a shout out to Kirsten Dunst, one of the great historical Kirsten's, because you did get your star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame a few weeks ago, I believe. Nice. And on Twitter, somebody did say that you were best known as the girlfriend of Spider-Man. And I just want to say that that is an affront that will stay with me till the end of time. I will not forget. No. Even as that person clearly forgot all of the things that you have gifted us in the form of your career. Was that person asleep for the entirety of the 90s? I mean, I guess. Like, guess they didn't see Bring It On. Guess they didn't see Little Women, even though she played, she actually almost made Amy likable. I'm going to say that. Can I say something stunning right now? Yeah, please do. Her career was activated in 1988, according to Wikipedia, and she's from a town called Point Pleasant, New Jersey. I don't know that that all means something, but I don't think it doesn't mean something. There are no coincidences in life or in AG, so we have to think that somehow Pleasant Rollin was, you know, pulling some strings, making things happen. I mean, I'm convinced that that's actually possible. 
Get Over It remains one of my favorite films of all times. You put that on right now, I'm going to watch. I would say that of anything that she's been in. Hold on, I got to pull up her filmography real quick. Got to just... Oh, yeah, I'm on it. All right, hold on. I got to come join you. Let's just kind of go through, you know, as a parting part of this episode, like, we just want to pay a tribute to you, girl. Everything you've brought us. I see here on her IMDb that she appeared in Sisters, the TV series, starting in 1993. And I would just love to say if there's a chance that anyone who knows Kirsten Dunst, could you please get her to tell me some intel about Bruce Springsteen's first wife, who, of course, was one of the sisters on that show. Moving on. I would love that. That would be so nice. She was in Jumanji. She was in Interview with the Vampire. Have not seen that. She is a dual citizen. Of where? Germany. Wow. She was on an episode of Touch by an Angel. <laughs> I like that we're giving all these things equal weight. I mean... I think it's what Nathaniel Hawthorne would have wanted. You know, it's exactly what he would have wanted. He would have sat beside me in this chair wearing a veil over his face and refusing to engage any of this because that's yeah. his journey and that's kind of his problem as well. Uh, she was on ER, okay? Need I say more? Second best medical drama in TV history. So true. Uh, she was in Wag the Dog, which is actually a very interesting movie. 15 and Pregnant, Lifetime movie. Never talk down to Lifetime. We all start somewhere. We all do. I love it. I, I would love to end on Lifetime. Like, that would be... I'd love to peak on Lifetime. Of course, you mentioned Bring It On, Get Over It, amazing film. Um, I'm not even going to talk about Spider-Man because we don't need to. Wimbledon, I think, is an underrated rom-com. Just going to say that. I enjoyed that. Sure. Elizabethtown is a GD mess. I don't blame her for that at all. That's some weird white boy fantasy. I'm not getting into it. And that really depresses me because Say Anything is one of my favorite movies of all time. And Cameron Crowe just got it wrong there. And he took her down with him. And I'm sorry for that for her. Marie Antoinette, great movie. <laughs> so if people if people want to give you like additional angles on this filmography like how should they reach out to you i mean if you can emotionally spiritually handle it feel free to find me on instagram at mimi mahoney and on twitter at mary mahoney one two three and what about you allison so you can find me at allison horrocks uh, on both instagram and on twitter and you can write to us at americangirlspod at gmail.com. You can visit our website, which is also americangirlspod.com. Um, and you can find us on A Girls Pod on Twitter and American Girls Pod on Instagram. Excellent. And thank you again to everyone who writes to us, um, sends us messages on our social media, sends us emails. We love hearing from you. And if you have not heard back from us yet, you will. I mean, I say that more for myself than for Allison or our actual account. When people email me personally, sometimes it takes me longer to get back. And if you wrote that Reddit relationship story about the girl and the uncle and the photo shoot, you have to write to us. You must show yourself immediately. We have many questions. It's one of you. It's not a real story. And we want to hear the backstory. We so want to hear the backstory. Out. And as I said to one of our listeners who sent it to me and a bunch of you sent it to us. So thank you so much. You know, is it too late to nominate someone for a Pulitzer? No, never. I don't think so. And that it's worthy of it. It's so... MacArthur? <sighs> We're ready. You know what? You deserve that 600K or whatever it is if you wrote that. You truly you do. do. So please reach out to us. Give us a call. All right. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.